Hi everyone, I'm Amanda Borsaldan and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, a crazy interesting study is being published in the Tel Aviv Archaeological Journal. It's called the Pentateuchal Dietary Prescription Against Finless and Scaleless Aquatic Species in Light of Ancient Fish Remains and was co-authored by Ariel University's Dr. Jonathan Adler and Haifa University's Professor Omri Lerneau. Finless and scaleless fish are prohibited in the Bible in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It appears in both books just after pig is forbidden from consumption, but it seems it was much less observed throughout the land and ages. Basically, the pair examine all the evidence of fish remains in ancient Judah over the period of some 2,000 years to see if the common everyday Judean was actually following this particular Torah law, and if so, from when? This study is part of Adler's Origins of Judaism project, which examines all sorts of Torah laws, including purity, figurative art, and dietary prohibitions, and it looks for concrete evidence for them. I found this conversation with Jonathan Adler really fascinating, and I hope you do too. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you today? You are finding me in my Jerusalem home. Okay, thanks for taking the time. I just read your study, which came out on Tuesday of this week, the title of which is The Pentateuchal Dietary Prescription Against Finless and Scaleless Aquatic Species in Light of Ancient Fish Remains. Deep breath, but it was incredibly, incredibly fascinating. Can you tell me briefly, what was the impetus for this study? There's a, a long story and a shorter story. I'll begin perhaps with the long story. Uh, this study is actually part of a, long, a, a larger project. Uh, the larger project is entitled The Origins of Judaism Archaeological Project. What I'm interested in is the question of from which point in time do we have evidence that ancient Judeans were aware of the Torah and saw the Torah as something authoritative, uh, which they should be keeping. From which point in time did the ancient Judeans uh, as associate the Torah with something authoritative that they need to be keeping? Uh, and the, the project looks at both textual uh, sources and archaeological remains, which provide evidence that ancient Judeans were actually keeping uh, the laws of the Torah. So, so this is the larger project within which uh, this particular study uh, is embedded. The things that um, we look at in this within the larger project are things such as um, ancient uh, ritual baths, which provide evidence for uh, purity laws, ancient stone vessels, which also are related to to purity uh, observance, ancient tefillin, ancient mezuzot. Um, practices with with regard to uh, figural art which was regarded as uh, a problem uh, as far as the second commandment is concerned, uh, and the dietary laws. So uh, the study of ancient fish remains is part of this larger study of, um, of, of Jewish practices in general. Okay, really interesting. Now, some of the things that you just mentioned, including tefillin and maybe mezuzot, uh, mikvaot, ritual baths, we associate them usually, I believe, as somewhat, quote-unquote, modern appearances of Judaism, meaning they're only about 
2,000 years old, whereas the dietary laws are quite, uh, um, they're written in the Torah, which we generally think is much, much older. Is that a correct assessment? Okay, so that's an important point uh, or distinction that you just made in terms of uh, things being written in an older uh, Torah. So uh, when, when you speak of the, the Torah, uh, you're referring to the presumably the, the five, first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, uh, which scholars uh, in modern times tend to think was written or compiled more accurately in the Persian period. So uh, when, when we're speaking about uh, the Persian period, uh, that's from, let's say, 539 until 332 BCE, okay, before the Common Era. Um, and scholars think that this is around the time when these, uh, these books were, were, were compiled, edited, and put together. There, the, there are earlier sources uh, embedded within these, these books, but this is, the, this is approximately the time that most scholars think that these books were, were put together. There's a very important distinction that I'd like to make between when a book is put together, is written down, edited, and put together, and when the general public knows of its existence and regards that book as authoritative. So I'm actually not interested in the question of when, when, these, uh, when the Pentateuch and its sources were, were, were first written down and compiled. That's a very, it's an important question, but it's a very different question than the kind that I am looking at. My interest is in the question of from which point in time do the masses, your regular rank-and-file everyday Judeans, uh, your, your uh, average Judean farmer, if you will, from which point in time do these people know about the existence of a Torah and regard this Torah as authoritative, as binding upon them normatively, binding uh, in their day-to-day lives? So it, it's a very separate question. And that's, that's, the, that's the kind of question that I'm trying to answer using uh, archaeology. Now, in this particular fish study, you took a very broad scope. Uh, your your start point, I believe, was 1550 BCE until 640 CE. So that's quite a long time to be studying these patterns of whether people ate or did not eat, or at least threw away, shall we say, uh, scaleless and finless fish. Why such a broad scope? Okay, so if, if, if you'll allow me, um, to, you would ask me how the study began, and uh, I said there's a longer answer and the shorter answer. So I just gave you the longer answer. The shorter answer about how this particular uh, part of this, uh, the larger study uh, came about, um, began, the, the study actually began in May 2017. Um, Professor Roni Reich of uh, Haifa University uh, had a retirement, uh, an evening in his honor uh, for his retirement. Uh, Professor Reich had, had written the seminal studies on ancient mikvaot, um, and I had done uh, a, a number of uh, studies, written a number of articles. My doctorate was, was on this as well, following uh, Reich's seminal work. Um, so I was invited to speak at, uh, at this evening in his honor. After me, um, Professor Omri Lernow of Haifa University as well spoke about uh, ancient fish remains that he had analyzed from one of uh, Professor Reich's uh, excavations in Jerusalem in the city of David. 
And in his presentation, in uh, Professor Lerner's presentation, he mentioned that a, a large percentage of the fish remains belonged to catfish, and there were remains of shark as well. And when I heard that, my ears perked up. And after he was finished speaking, I went over to him and I said, uh, I said, Omri, we need to speak. And we did begin to speak. And that, that discussion uh, continued for another four years until the study uh, <laughs> study is actually coming out tomorrow. Um, but the, the, the discussion began a research project in which um, we, we looked at these, at these fish remains. Um, Professor Lernow is the man that studies fish in Israel. So any archaeological excavation where fish are uncovered, uh, chances are that the, the, the fish remains will be sent to him. He, he's crazy about it. It's actually, his father as well was, a, uh, was an expert in, in ancient fish remains. And uh, as, as a result, he has a tremendous database of fish remains from throughout the country, from a large, large scale of time. What we decided to do was to look, to take uh, a particular snapshot, a snapshot of 2000 years, but a, a, a window from, as you said, 1550 BCE until 640 CE. So it's a, we're talking about 2000 years of time within which this period of time, we can say for sure Pentateuch came about and Judaism uh, was born. Okay, so within this period of time, there's no doubt that, that, that Judaism had emerged. But what, it was important for us to take a larger perspective in order to see what the dietary behaviors were, what dietary patterns were with regard to these fish. So in other words, it was important to see, were people eating catfish, for example, in this area of the world um, throughout a long period of time. And then once we were able to, to show that actually this was a regular part of people's diets, the question then becomes, okay, once we have, we can start to think that maybe Judaism has emerged, are ancient Judeans eating a catfish, shark, and so on, or not? So, so it was important to get the larger perspective uh, in order to be able to zoom in on the particular question of, uh, you know, a dietary perspective uh, prohibition, whether it's being observed or not. Just to give our listeners a little more uh, context, it was 30 sites with 56 assemblages and some 21,646 skeletal elements in terms of these fish. Just, just to be clear, that means that Omri uh, had to identify each and every one of those 21,000 uh, skeletal elements. This is something which I I can't do. I can, you know, look at a, a bone and perhaps tell you that it comes from a fish, uh, but Omri is able to identify these fish remains to the level of of species, actually. So that's that's uh, <laughs> it's a skill which very few people in Israel have, and I'm very uh, thankful and grateful uh, that uh, I had the opportunity to uh, to do this study together with Omri. Now, identifying the fish bones is one set of skills, and identifying the people and the culture that consumed them is a completely different set of skills. And how can you be so sure in any one location who it was, or even what? Could it not have been animals who consumed them uh, at any certain time? How do you know? Okay, so that's an excellent question, and it's a, it's a problem which 
uh, we raise in the article. Um, in general, uh, so first of all, it's important to note that if you have fish remains at a site like Jerusalem, which is located at a distance from any natural bodies of water that have fish, um, there's little doubt that the fish were being eaten. Okay, so in other words, if I have uh, catfish, for example, or, or perch uh, in Jerusalem, in a garbage dump in Jerusalem, the fish were brought there to be eaten. There's nothing you can do with fish uh, other than eating them. Generally in archaeology, when we have a site that is located within an area of settlement that we are able to identify as belonging to a certain ethnic group, um, we, and if we find at that site material remains that we can identify with that ethnic group, we tend to associate all of the finds that come together with that with that ethnic group. So, for example, if we're excavating at a site that's located within Philistia, let's say Ashkelon, for example, and we find within a certain archaeological context um, pottery that is associated with Philistine culture, and then we find food remains that are associated with this pottery, we tend to say, okay, it was the Philistines that used this pottery. It was the Philistines that ate uh, the, the food that we found the remains of. The same thing with our study. Uh, if we have uh, an excavation in Jerusalem during the Iron Age, for example, and we know that Jerusalem is the capital of, of Ju uh, Judah, of Judea at this time, and we find archaeological remains such as pottery and so on and so forth, which we generally identify with Judean culture, when we then find food remains that are associated with that pottery at this site, we tend to say, okay, these belong to Judeans. Is it possible that non-Judeans came and visited uh, Jerusalem and had a meal of, um, of catfish, for example? It's possible. It, it can't, we cannot... Um, we cannot show definitively that that's not the case, but it's in, in general archaeological thinking, this is considered to be unlikely. It seems like in some of the sites that you uh, cited in your study, there was more catfish being eaten than in others, such as the places near the Sea of Galilee, where you can see until today catfish uh, roaming around and in different uh, parts of the Jordan River as well. Uh, what do you make of that? So, um, it, it, so okay, it, it's actually uh, a bit of a problem to make too much of uh, quantities. The reason is, it's actually quite simple. If we find 100 bones belonging to catfish, let's say we find 200 bones of that 100 belonging to catfish and at one site. And then at another site, we find 500 bones and only 50 that belong to catfish. What does that mean? Right? Does that mean that we have uh, a lot more at the first site than at the second site? Not necessarily, because how many bones are in a catfish? Gazillion million, no? <laughs> there are, we'll have to ask Omri how, exactly how many uh, bones there are in a catfish, but there are a lot. And the fact that we find 50 doesn't necessarily mean that we have more than one fish even. So the, the quantity is, is a bit tricky. What's important here is the question of absence or presence. If we have catfish bones, that means that somebody there was eating catfish. If we don't have catfish bones, 
it means that we haven't found evidence that somebody there was eating catfish. But the absence of presence is is, is the most important thing rather than uh, necessarily uh, raw quantities. Okay. One of the other things that struck me is that some of these catfish species, at least, come from very far away. What does this teach us about ancient trade and in terms of commodities and how precious these catfish may have been? Yes. So actually, some of the catfish uh, came apparently came from uh, the Nile. Uh, they're not indigenous to to Israel. Um, I am not. I haven't done studies on the catfish. This is Omri's field. So um, he has done, uh, he has published some studies on this, on the, the trade of fish in general. Uh, some, of, some of the other fish, uh, the kosher fish were found, uh, that were found in Jerusalem, derived from the Red Sea, um, the port of, of Eilat. Um, and yeah, so there, there apparently was a, uh, quite a, a, a vibrant trade in fish. The fish pro- apparently were not, uh, frozen, so they would have been salted or cured in, in some way. Um, but yes, they, they, were, they were exported over quite some distances. This Times of Israel podcast episode is sponsored by the Israel Policy Forum. Check out their fine podcast, Israel Policy Pod, which takes you behind the headlines with the policymakers and thought leaders shaping the conversation on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Tune in each week for new episodes of Israel Policy Pod featuring the Israel Policy Forum's expert analysts and special guests. And on June 2nd, join in for the inaugural Virtual Policy Summit at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific to examine the road ahead for U.S.-Israel relations and the efforts towards a two-state solution. For more information, please visit israelpolicyforum.org. Another of the things in the study that struck me was the independent origin stories of these prohibitions, meaning the prohibition against eating pork or any kind of pig product probably had a different origin than this uh, prohibition against eating finless, scaleless fish. Would you agree with that? And where do you think it came from? Okay, so that's, that, that, that is actually one of the other uh, important uh, finds that we... That we um concluded in this study. So um, there have been uh, some very important studies uh, in recent years, um, particularly uh, a number of uh, articles that have come out from Tel Aviv University, led by uh, Lidar Sapirchen uh, at Tel Aviv, um, which showed that pig was not being eaten by all ethnic groups in the Southern Levant uh, in, in ancient times. Um, so already from the Bronze Age, we have uh, many sites where we don't find pig remains. And at only a limited amount of sites, we do find pig remains. Particularly, their findings were that uh, pig remains were found associated with Egyptian occupation in the late Bronze Age. And, um, and then later on in the Iron Age with Philistine urban centers. Philistine rural areas did not have pig remains. Philistine urban centers did have pig remains. Judean sites did not have pig remains. Israelite sites did have pig remains. So it's clear that there are people that are raising pigs and eating pigs, other people that are not raising pigs and not eating pigs. 
But it's important to, to, to understand that absence of a certain kind of food does not necessarily mean abstention from that food, right? Um, which is a mistake that often uh, scholars, scholars even make in thinking that if we have absence of a certain kind of food, that necessarily implies a taboo. Um, but what's, but when we, but in the end of the day, what we do find is that when the Pentateuchal laws are being written down, compiled, and the prohibition against pig is, is being put on paper, if you will, um, pig was not being eaten by Judeans. And that had been the case for quite some time. So Judeans had not been eating pigs for hundreds of years. Their ancestors, their Canaanite ancestors, ancestors had not been eating pig uh, for, for, for hundreds of years. And the Pentateuchal prohibition against pig was written on that backdrop. That is not the case with a fish. With a fish, uh, non uh, or scaleless fish was being eaten by Judeans for hundreds of years. And when the Pentateuchal laws came to be written down, th this was against uh, or it, contra it contradicted longstanding Judean dietary uh, behaviors. So, so the, the fish prohibition actually, as, as it seems, had a very different background to the pig prohibition, despite the fact that the fish po prohibition appears immediately after the pig prohibition uh, in both places that it appears in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And have you uh, done any studies of comparative cultural, you know, contemporary cultures that also had a prohibition against these uh, scaleless, finless fish? So I am not aware of any other cultures in the area that had any similar kinds of, of uh, prohibition or taboo, let's say. Um, I, I'm not aware of any texts that uh, refer to any such uh, taboo, and nor do I know of any archaeological studies that have looked at uh, abstention, let's say, or I just said that you can't find abstention in the archaeological record, but um, non-eating of, of these, these kinds of fish. I, I'm not aware of that uh, in any of the surrounding cultures. One of the things that was important for us to look at in our study was, do we find... Um, these uh, non, uh, these scaleless fish, scaleless and finless fish, do we find them at sites that are non-Judean or non-Israelite uh, any more than we find them at sites that are uh, Judean or Israelite? The bottom line was that there was no distinction. We could not find a distinction between Israelite and Judean sites. Non-kosher fish were being eaten at all of these sites. It, it's so interesting. Now, you have this book coming out next year, in 2022, about the origins of Judaism as a system of ritual practice. Now, I always thought that the origins of Judaism happened basically after the fall of the Second Temple. Are you finding something different in terms of archaeological proof? So the question is one of definitions. When you say Judaism, what, what do you mean? Um, after the fall of the Second Temple, we have the emergence of what might be called rabbinic Judaism. So the first uh, named rabbis, you know, those that have the title rabbi before their name, um, we only find after, after the Second Temple. And the whole rabbinic movement really takes off after the, the Second Temple. But already before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 uh, CE, there was a vibrant way of life, a Judean way of life, which was 
governed by Torah law. That is to say, we have ample proof in the first century CE that Judeans knew about the Torah, held it in high regard, held it as authoritative and of binding uh, status, and were keeping these rules in their day-to-day lives. So we have, for example, ample evidence in sources written in the first century CE, such as Josephus, Flavius, uh, Philo of Alexandria, the New Testament, um, and also in the writings of non, uh, non-Judean writers, Roman and, and writers that were writing in Greek and Latin uh, that refer to Judeans' practices that are based in the observance of the Torah. This we have in the first century CE before the destruction of the Second Temple. We also have ample archaeological evidence that this is so. As I mentioned before, ritual baths, stone vessels which are related to a ritual purity, tefillin, mezuzot, uh, Judeans are refraining from figural art in deference to the Second Commandment, and many other uh, examples of evidence that we have that Judeans are keeping these rules. So we have this certainly before the destruction of the Second Temple. That doesn't mean that anybody was following the rabbinic rules. The rabbinic rules uh, appear later on. But they were following the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, was the foundational text for this Judean way of life. And I think it's absolutely um, correct to call this Judaism. So um, what would be the earliest proof, you know, archaeological proof, evidence that you have in terms of dating it? Okay. So in my book, uh, which, as you said, will be coming out in 2022 uh, with Yale University Press, um, I go through each of these uh, each of these practices and prohibitions to see what is the earliest evidence we have. So as I said, in the first century CE, we have a lot of evidence for all of these practices and prohibitions. The question that I then ask is, okay, well, how about the first century BCE? First century before the common era. How about the second century before the common era? How about the third century before the common era? And so on and so forth. What I'm looking is to see where does the trail of evidence end? And the conclusions are quite surprising. I feel like I need a drum roll right now, but (laughs) (laughs) but eyes are wide open. Let's do it. Okay. I I wanted to make it sound a little bit dramatic. Well, the (laughs) conclusions are that we don't have evidence for any of these practices or prohibitions prior to the second century before the common era. Uh, That is to say from the period of the Hasmonean dynasty, that is our earliest evidence that we have for for any and all of these, uh, these practices and prohibitions. To say it again and more clearly, we do not have any evidence that the Judean masses, that your regular everyday Judean that you would have met on the street of Jerusalem prior to the middle of the second century BCE had any knowledge of the Torah and or that he observed the rules of the Torah. We have no evidence that regular everyday Judeans knew of the Torah prior to the second century before the common era. Do you think that the fact that the Hasmonean dynasty was a priestly dynasty helped proliferate the quote-unquote priestly law? Okay, now, wait a second. We just took a jump there. Um, The fact that we don't have evidence from before the middle of the second century BCE doesn't necessarily mean that Judaism begins then, okay? That just means that we don't have evidence. The absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. That is a very important point. 
What it does mean, though, is that we don't have evidence. Now, so Judaism begins sometime in the middle of the second century BCE or before, right? Um, how much before? Here, we have, here we're left to conjecture. Here we don't have evidence. We're, we're talking about lack of evidence, which means that we can only conjecture. Um, and then we can start to think about different, uh, different scenarios. Now, one thing which, which, which I did find in, in, this, uh, in the book is that when we're speaking about the Persian period, there's very little reason to think that regular, everyday, rank-and-file Judeans knew anything about the Torah uh, as early as the Persian period. Again, years Persian period, 539 to 332 BCE. There's no reason to think that at this time, uh, regular Judeans knew anything about the Torah. Um, to the contrary, we have uh, quite a bit of evidence from various archaeological epigraphic, meaning ancient writings uh, that have uh, survived the test of time in places like Elephantine in Egypt, uh, in Babylonia, um, and finds in Judea as well, which suggests that ancient Judeans uh, at this time it did not know of the Torah, or at least weren't uh, observing uh, the rules. We have evidence of polytheistic beliefs. Uh, we have a, a, a temple in Egypt in Elephantine, um, which uh, is uh, built, which was built to the Jewish God um, or the Judean God. Uh, and there, there's very re little reason to think that Judeans at this time were, were keeping the rules of the Torah. So we can put the Persian period aside as a time when Judaism would have emerged. What we're left over it with is the, the long Hellenistic period. So from the conquests of Alexander the Great in 332 BCE, um, for about another 200 years until we reach the time of the Hasmoneans, Sometime during this time, I would say, uh, is the best time to be seeking the emergence of Judaism. So whether it happened earlier in the Hellenistic period or under the Hasmoneans themselves uh, is, is really where we should be uh, thinking that Judaism is probably emerging. So fascinating. I could speak with you about this so much. And I hope to again after I read your book. In the meantime, congratulations on the fish study, which is out this week. And just really, really eye-opening and um, mind-expanding. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.